Hey, hey, beautiful people, and welcome to The Impact Code, where we take deep dives into the stories and journeys of impact in the lives of our guests. Today's guest is Dr. Brittany Lamb. So let me just give you a brief intro to Dr. Lamb and the work that she's doing. I found her on LinkedIn and her LinkedIn objective was so compelling that I had to reach out and have her on the show. So Dr. Brittany Lamb helps dementia caregivers make confident medical decisions. And there's a ton that goes into this. And we'll talk a lot about that in today's episode. But let's just give a little background uh, to Dr. Brittany Lamb here briefly. She graduated from medical school at the Florida State University College of Medicine and was residency trained at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. She's a board certified emergency medicine attending physician with over 12 years of healthcare experience with nearly nine of those being in the ER. And as she'll talk about in the podcast today, she noticed a pattern of people coming into the emergency room that which more than half of the patients that she, she sees typically fall into this 65 plus year old age group. And so she noticed this problem and the work that she's doing now is directly addressing that, which I think is so profound and so meaningful. Brittany is doing such cool work in the world and I can't wait for you to hear her story. But before we do that, I want to take one quick moment and talk to you about Tower Community Bank. Tower created and supports this show. And what I mean when I say supports is that they pay for everything about the show. They pay for the hosting, they pay for the equipment, they pay for any marketing related to the show. So the show is fully supported and a part of Tower Community Bank. And this is really cool because Tower has a mission to make the communities where we live better places to live, work, and raise a family. And this podcast is one of the ways that we do that. And it's also a way that we're expanding our community. We're bringing more people into our community and we're able to elevate and share their stories of impact and how they're making a positive impact in the world. So it's a great way for us to live out our mission, to share stories of other people who maybe unknowingly are living out our mission in the world. And if you're enjoying the podcast so far, it's completely thanks to Tower Community Bank. So if you are enjoying it, go to towercommunitybank.com and check us out. And now, without further ado, my conversation with Dr. Brittany Lamb. Hello, everyone. I'm so excited to introduce to you today, Dr. Brittany Lamb. Brittany, thank you so much for being on the Impact Code today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here and chat with you. Yeah, I'm excited too. I found you through LinkedIn and it was really interesting because the thing that caught my eye uh, was just your little profile tagline talking (laughs) about end of life care for individuals and improving that. And I thought it was such a fascinating mission. And such a cool way to have a positive impact. At that moment, I was like, I got to get her on the show. I think I reached out via LinkedIn. <laughs> and uh, here we are. Here we are today uh, having our conversation. So I'm really excited that you're here for a couple of reasons. The first being that my family recently went through an end of life uh, transition with my grandpa. And I saw firsthand the stress that it can place on sort of the, the family unit. Mm-hmm. especially if some of these things that we're going to talk about today are not super clear. Mm-hmm. And the second is that you're doing something that I felt like was really unique in addressing an issue that is really common head on instead of through sort of the traditional methods. And so I want to start today after that long preamble by <laughs> just simply talking about you started um, in the emergency room. Is that correct? Yeah, no, I'm still I'm still a full time practicing emergency medicine physician. Mm-hmm. Yes, perfect. So, can you talk about how you found your way to this mission and sort of what what was it that sort of caught your eye and made you aware of this issue? Yeah, so um, so I've been an attending now after residency for about six years. Um, I've always had a passion for people who are aging. Um, I've just always liked that patient population. They're just fun to talk to. I love their experience and wisdom. And um, but one thing I've noticed in healthcare is that it gets it gets very hard to make medical decisions when you're aging and you're sick. 
And so, you know, we're all at risk of not being able to speak for ourselves when we're ill. But people who are aging are more at risk for that. And when you work in the hospital, you you see people who are suffering, you know, you see patients who are very sick and suffering. And sometimes we wonder, are we doing some are we doing things to the person? Are we doing things for the person? Uh And, you know, it makes a huge difference. And we want to make sure that the care that we're providing this person is something that they would actually want. And I've found that these conversations are hard to have and people kind of shy away from them. But the problem is that when we don't talk about what living means to us, what gives us quality of life, you know, when our families, when our families have to step in and make tough decisions for us, just not having those basis conversations, that basic uh, underlying information, it makes it really, really hard for them to speak on behalf of their family members. So when I was in medical school, I actually did research on a medical order form called the POST form, which is a way to document some of your preferences and actually turn that into an order that paramedics, so 911 responders would need to follow, and then staff in the hospital. So that was a long time ago. That was over a decade ago that I did that work. And then I've just always kind of had my finger on the pulse of this issue. And I see it every day in the emergency department. And it was causing me significant burnout, especially during COVID. You know, I was making a lot of phone calls to families because they couldn't come in. And especially from people living in facilities, people living in skilled nursing facilities or, you know, assisted living or memory care places. And then they were really sick coming in with COVID and I'm having to call the families because these, these folks couldn't make their own medical decisions. I had a lot of um, goals of care conversations. And so it's, it's, it's something that I've always cared about. So I, I specifically work with dementia families um, because I think that those folks are extremely vulnerable. So all people who are aging are vulnerable, but people living with dementia even more so. So that's kind of some of it. I mean, I have personal family history of dementia. Um, My grandmother lived with us when I was growing up when I was a teenager. She had vascular dementia. So it's just kind of always been uh, in my world. So Yeah. Can you talk about why is there, and this may be a really basic question, but just for people listening who may not be aware, why is, what is the additional risk for someone that does have dementia that might cause some of these things to be more urgent to talk about? Yeah. So, you know, when someone's diagnosed with a disease that's, that's causing dementia symptoms. So one thing I do want to say is that dementia is not a disease. So it's, it's a collection of symptoms of someone's brain not functioning the way that it should or the way that mm-hmm. it used to. There's multiple diseases, Alzheimer's, Lewy body dementia, Parkinson's can cause dementia, frontotemporal dementia, vascular dementia. So, um, but, the, but the issue is that when someone is diagnosed with a disease that causes dementia, we know that that person at some point will not be able to make their own decisions. Because if you think about it, think about when you make decisions every day, like we do lots of thinking in our minds, lots of turning things over and analyzing. It's a very complex task to make a medical decision. You have to understand what's actually happening in the situation to you, what's going on with your health. You have to understand the options for treatment and care. You have to apply those options to your own individual situation make a decision, and then kind of tell us why you're making that decision. Those are all the steps that go into making an informed medical decision. So usually in the late, early to middle stages of diseases that cause dementia, um, and that's a generalization, but um, usually people people will permanently lose their ability to make those decisions. So we know their family will be stepping in to speak for them, which is why yeah. that's kind of why I, that's another reason why I wanted to help these families because it's like, we know this will happen. It's not my, you know, my grandmother who my personal grandmother is in her early eighties and she can still make her own decisions, you know? I've had conversations with her because I know I'm going to be involved, but it's, you know, you just don't know when that's going to happen. But with, with, with diseases causing dementia, we know it will happen. Yeah. Do you have any, just based on your own experience, how often are families really well prepared Mm. having had these conversations? I, I think, I mean, obviously in the emergency department, 
I see people who come in in crisis mode a lot. And so I think the families that are super prepared, you know, they may not be coming into the emergency department. So my kind of the pool of people that I see is obviously a little bit um, biased probably. Um, But, but I mean, it's not very common, you know, it's not very common. And I have, you know, I talk to people who are aging, you know, when they come in for random things, because this is something that I care about. I, you know, they come in and they fell and they broke their arm and I'm like, Hey, by the way, you know, and they may be like, why is this your doctor trying to ask me about what my values are if I start to get really sick? But if I feel like I have a pretty decent rapport with people, I'll kind of be like, Hey, you know, what's your, what's your thought process on? what would happen to you if you were really sick and people have very strong opinions. But then I ask them, you know, Hey, have you talked to your family about your values, about the fact that you're, you're telling me I've lived, I've lived a great life. I don't want to be kept alive artificially, you know, and they tell me, no, they haven't talked to their family. So I'm just Mm. like, well, how are they supposed to know that that's what you care about? If you haven't, if you haven't talked to them about it. Um, so I think that, no, I think a lot of families don't prepare. Um, I think a lot of people are caught off guard. And as caregivers, there's a lot of things that you have to do and that you're navigating. And I think that this is, you know, something that can oftentimes be kind of put aside. So, yeah, um, I do see I do see people having documents like a living will. But I'll tell you that those those documents are they're templated. And so they're not very specific or individualized. And so I don't usually find that they're very helpful in, in guiding me in how to make medical decisions for a person. Um, ah, so, that's really interesting. And I, I wonder, yeah. that's something that's surprising to me, just not, I, I guess, having been in the situation where I have a, a living will and I have it sort of set up, but I, I guess not having been in the situation where it's needed to have been accessed for any reason, that is something that surprises me. Can you talk about why that is that it may not be the most effective way to communicate those desires? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I think that, listen, I think that having advanced directives, so there's two main types of advanced directives. There's in like, I think it was 1990, there was a federal law that was passed that said, hey, look, people should be able to direct their healthcare in advance if they're not able to speak for themselves, which that makes sense, you know? But yeah. there's two main ways to do it. And one is declaring who you want to speak for you on your behalf. So that 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 title is different per state, but medical power of attorney, healthcare power of attorney, healthcare surrogate, those are very common terms. You can name someone you want to speak for you. That is an advanced directive. The other type of advanced directives are living wills are the most common. There's another document called the five wishes. Um, and then different, there are like dementia specific advanced directives. I don't see those in where I work. I've never seen that, but um you can get specific in these documents, but when you do them, when you find them online, you read them, or you go to see an attorney who's not a doctor, you know, they're they're oftentimes written very generally. And they'll say things like, if you have a terminal or end stage condition and two doctors think that you're not going to live and like the care that you're receiving is not working, what would you want? And so it's, it's, it's talking about end of life. And, and I'll tell you that in the emergency department, when you roll in, you know, you come in by ambulance or you come in through the front door and you're really, really sick. I mean, I don't always know whether or not, you know, I don't always know whether or not someone is going to, is going to do well or not. And so we have to start critical care and and critical care is just care that happens in the hospital that supports someone and helps all their organs stay working so that they can have a chance of recovering, but it's life prolonging. It's like artificial care, you know, like it's not natural. So we're like keeping someone alive and that's not always with machines. It can be with medications through your IV. And anyway, you know, when, when people come in, we just don't know. And what I find is that if, if someone is living with, with quality of life that they wouldn't really find acceptable, then starting that critical care may not be appropriate. Yeah. And those directives don't tell us that. And they're, yep. they don't tell us based on the actual condition that's happening to the person, what they would want. And so that's, that's why I've come online is because I believe that people who are aging should have individualized plans based on the things that they are at risk for. 
Mm. Um, because of their medical problems and because the fact that they're aging. And so that's what I help dementia families with that are that are going to have to make medical decisions on behalf of the person living with dementia. I help them create an individualized medical decision plan based on the conditions their person is at risk for. Yeah, I think that's both creative and incredibly useful because I think there's having something that's more specific to the various situations that someone may encounter and that can give more detail and color and nuance to things that may appear uh, on those forms that we talked about on the advanced directives. It just, it feels very black and white when you're sort of filling those out. Yeah. And there's, there is a lot more nuance to being a human than Mm -hmm. I think can be covered in that sort of advanced directives. So when it comes to these individual plans, is this something that, like if someone is interested, they say, "Hey, I I have a family member that you know is is dealing with dementia right now, and I want to do an individual plan." Mm-hmm. How in the world does someone go about that? Yeah, so um, I teach people how to do this inside of an audio training that I made, and it's free. You can get it on my website. You do have to give me your email address, and then it it gets emailed to you. Um, it's like a one hour training. Um, I'm probably gonna re- be revamping it soon because it's been about it's been out for about a year. Um, but it's it will tell you like, the process, like the what you need to do. But the thing is that I I built an online course that actually deep dives into all the medical conditions. So mm-hmm. inside of my course, I teach you know, the most common medical conditions that happen as people are living with dementia and it, and it gets worse. So like falls, infection, difficulty swallowing. I teach all of those things, how we diagnose them, how we treat them, the standard of care for someone who wants, you know, full treatment and wants every, every bit of care. And then, and then kind of like what you can do if someone's goals are more towards comfort. Um, And then I also teach, I also teach the conditions that are really common with aging because people living with dementia are aging, you know, and even people with early onset dementia, people are being diagnosed in their forties and fifties with early onset diseases causing dementia. And, um, you know, they're going to age too, you know, like if we're not, if we're still alive, we're aging. So those conditions like stroke, like different types of heart disease, um, things like, um, uh, like, issues with the abdomen. So like you can have your appendix. Like I had a client whose whose husband had appendicitis. His appendix got inflamed and he needed to have surgery. And it was very complicated recovery because of his disease. So I teach just like normal run-of-the-mill things that people come into the ER for. But so I I I teach people about what they may need to make choices about as far as treatment goes. And then it all goes back to goals of care, which I teach in the course as well as how to determine what your person's goals are now and when they might change in the future. Because most people, most people have a value of quality of life and would choose less aggressive care over time as their quality of life worsens. That's the very common. That's not everybody, but um, a lot of people feel that way. So the course is, it's all on my website. It's um, blammd.com. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. We will link to that for anyone listening. If if this is something that you are interested in, I'll make sure that it's in the show notes. People can just click right through there and get access to anything that you're talking about, which is, it sounds like can be very, very helpful. Uh, Brittany, was there a specific time or a specific story? It sounds like this issue as a whole has been on your radar even since you were going through med school, but was there a specific instance or story where you became more passionate about this or it, it really sort of surfaced for you? The you know, heaviness yeah, of this? I think that, um, I think really it was multiple things. I mean, definitely COVID. I think COVID was, you know, I, we had an issue in our, where I, I, I live and work in Northern Virginia and, you know, we were hit in the spring of 2020. We had, we had issues. We had a lot of patients that were really sick and they, you know, had respiratory failures. Their lungs were failing from COVID pneumonia. And it was a lot of patients coming from living facilities. So there were people who were aging. A lot of them were living with dementia. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so like, I think just having those conversations and calling families and asking them, you know, 
what would your person say about the way that they've been living prior to being sick with COVID? Because that's not how you make decisions. You don't make decisions right. based on how sick someone is right now. We need to know how has this person been living? Would they be okay with the way that they've been living? You know, would they want their life prolonged considering the way that they have been living? That's right. their, that's your, your decision about, you know, your person better than I do. Right. Like, I don't know. So, yeah. um, so yeah, having those conversations, I, I worked up, I worked outside of the emergency department, I actually worked in our like step down unit. So not the ICU, but not a regular floor bed in the hospital, kind of an area where people were sicker, where they were, you know, they were more sick and they needed, they needed doctors to be up there at night because they, um, it was just not, we needed more doctors. Basically there were too many patients that were really sick. It was really stressful for the nurses. So they yeah. asked some of the ER doctors because we're very comfortable taking care of critically ill patients. If we would come upstairs and work, you know? And so I was like, uh, okay, sure. So yeah. I um, did those shifts and my, my kind of biggest contribution to that unit was that I called families and I would talk to them. You know, I would call them. I got in at seven and I would start calling them right away, you know, before wow. it got super late and just figure out what do you understand about what's going on? Like, do you, do you get what's happening and what are we doing here? Like, let's talk big picture, you know? Um, but then, you know, also personally, my husband, his mother, so his grandmother, his mom's mom, um, passed away uh, about a year ago now, and she was living with dementia. And I, and my mother-in-law, you know, would text me and call me and ask me, Brittany, is this prolonging her life? Like, should we do this? Should we not do this? How do I protect her from you in the ER? I don't want her to go to the ER. You know, I want her to pass away. Like naturally, I don't want to prolong her life. And so it was kind of the combination of those things that made me go, you know, I, I need to stop complaining about this issue. And I can actually do something about it. I can come mm. online and start talking and putting out videos. And so that's what I did in the fall of, it was the fall of 2021. Mm. I started, I was started going on Facebook and <laughs> just talking live about yeah. these issues. And then I started a Facebook group. Then I started last year, I started a blog. So I wrote like 20 articles in 2022. Um, wow. And then I, you know, I worked with a couple of clients individually and I took everything that I made for them and turned it into a product that's the online course so people can do it at their own pace. Because what I found was that caregivers are so busy, you know, mm -hmm. they can't, you know, meeting with me once a week or every couple of weeks was really challenging. So that was a long winded answer to your question. <laughs> but no, you, yeah. you had so much, so much great stuff in there. And yeah, I, I'm curious, like for you personally, uh, with this work coming to fruition, do you feel like it's sort of maybe giving you new life? Cause I imagine COVID was just exhausting. I mean, I, I'm imagining because I, can't, I literally can't imagine the toll that it took on healthcare workers on the front line and the, mm -hmm. how many, like making calls like that, the toll, do you feel like this is something that's sort of reinvigorating you or, yeah. you know, what, how is this work fulfilling you? Yeah. So it definitely is. I mean, I've, I think that I've honestly been burnt out for years and I just didn't, I never, it came to a head really in like the summer of 2021. So, yeah. you know, COVID actually, I was burnt out and COVID actually made it a bit better because it was mm. like, you know, here we are, we have to respond to this. I'm young. I don't, I, I, you know, we were all very concerned about our health. We were hearing about physicians getting very sick in Italy and passing away, right. you know, and in the very beginning. And so we were nervous, but I was like, you know, I'm young and healthy. I'm one of the youngest doctors in my group. So I'm like, whatever, I'll put on the stuff and I'll go see these people, you know? Yeah. And, um, but so it actually kind of put some pep in my step, like having something to fight for, you know? Yeah. And then we also, I'll be quite honest, we, we only saw patients in the emergency department for emergencies. Mm. And that was, that was kind of nice. Um, yeah. because the, our healthcare system is, is broke, is broken. It's not yeah. working. It's, right. it's super dysfunctional. And it's very frustrating to be a part of. And then what I do in the ER, sometimes I'm able to kind of, deal with it mentally because my position is that I am there to, to screen people essentially. Like the way mm -hmm. that I've processed it in my mind is you come in, are you really sick? Do you need to be hospitalized? Right. Do you need surgery right now? 
And then if no, then, okay, can you go home or do we need to watch you in the hospital? Are we not really sure? Do we need to watch you in the hospital or can you go home and follow up? And that's really my job. So we are like fancy triage system. We don't fix things. Typically we can't always diagnose things. And so that's that it, it, it wears on you. You know, when you see people who don't have access to care, Mm -hmm. you know, they're coming to you because they don't know where to go. And you know that they have something going on, but you can't diagnose it. Um, you know, you can't get them in to see a specialist. It's it's tough. So I think I was burnt out for a long time, but COVID yeah. kind of put a pep in my step. And then and then I hit a wall, really. I did. Um, and so this work has been, it's just been, I think that a lot of physicians are conditioned to think that we are just doctors. And because it takes so long to get to where we yeah. are, you know, so... Yeah. I did four years of college, four years of med school, three years of residency. I was 29 when I finished. I had no money. I had no savings. I, you know, you then you start to work and you're, you know, you're, and then actually about a few years in, I kind of said to myself, is this my life now? Like I have nothing Mm. else to work towards. And I felt like I had, it's so it's people tell me it sounds crazy, but I really felt like I had no purpose anymore. Mm. And so I, yeah, this work has made me, it's made me so much happier at work. Um, because now when I see caregivers, I can tell them about all these resources, all these people I'm meeting online. Um, and you know, I don't tell them about my business cause it feels weird, but, um, of course, yeah, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but I, I can help people in a different way now. And I, and I feel like I can do more than just be a doctor in the ER. So, so yeah, it's helped a lot. Yeah. I want to take a moment and one of the prompts that you had, you, you've put together sort of a list of things that you've talked about. And I know you haven't looked at that list in a, in a little while, but one of the things that, that was interesting to me um, was you had a, what a DNR really means. And oh, yeah. is that a do not resuscitate? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? What yeah. does it mean? Yeah, yeah. I'll talk about it. Mm. So do not resuscitate is a medical order form. And so it's, it's a document of a document that says that somebody does not want to have CPR uh, if they're actively dying. So we only do CPR to people, cardio pulmonary resuscitation, cardio is your heart, pulmonary is your lungs. Resuscitation just means we're trying to bring you back. Essentially. That's how you can think about it. You only do that when someone doesn't have a pulse, you don't have a heartbeat, you can't feel it in their neck and they're going and they're not breathing. So someone is actively dying they will either die if they don't come back or, you know, or you might get their pulse back. Okay. You might, you might be able to resuscitate them. But when people, um, when, when people are of an advanced age, you know, it's less, it's less likely to be effective um, CPR. And it's a bundle of care that includes chest compressions. So what you see on TV, you know, when people are pumping on someone's chest, chest compressions, medications, electricity, only when it's applicable, you see on television, them shocking people. It's nonsense that like you, oftentimes you cannot shock people. So there's only certain patterns of the heart that you can actually deliver electricity to and fix. Um, and then the other thing is controlling someone's breathing. So a lot of times, and a lot of times we will put people on, we'll intubate them. So we put the tube down the back of their throat into their airway, and then we bag them with our, with our mask. And then if they get their pulse back, then they go on the ventilator. But so, you know, when people are living with significant underlying illnesses or they're of advanced age, we know that CPR isn't as effective. Um, It's not as effective if you have a cardiac arrest outside of the hospital, because it takes a while for people to get to you. You know, once you've been 10 minutes without a pulse, you know, you're not getting blood flow to your brain. It's your brain becomes very injured. Your brain needs oxygen. And um, people that do get their pulses back after 20, 30 minutes oftentimes have significant brain damage and don't like come back to the way they were. So it's, you know, it depends on how, what someone's age is and what their underlying medical problems are. But it's it's um it's an order form that will protect you from getting CPR, and so it's signed by a, a physician or a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant, um, just saying that if you don't have a pulse and you're not breathing, that you don't want to have CPR. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's 
definitely for people who are living with advanced illness and people who are, you know, if you're over 80, 85, um, it might be a reasonable thing, but it's an individualized decision. It's very emotional. But I think that when people actually look at the statistics of how effective CPR is, if you actually have a rational conversation about it, you can, you can make an informed choice. So. Yeah. And it seems like a lot of the work that you're doing is really around informed choice. It's around giving people the tools to be able to have the conversations that maybe they're not informed to have, or maybe that they're difficult, they're difficult to have. So I think we naturally tend to avoid talking about the things that we don't want to think about. I I know that's true for me. And I know that's true even just in my relationship with my wife. You know, there's things that like we both know we need to talk about sometimes, but we'll like dance around it for a while instead of talk about it because it's just, it's uncomfortable to talk about. And so I think that probably plays in here and, and just having the knowledge sometimes is enough to prompt Yeah, that's what I've tried to do. You know, we all have bias in healthcare, you know, and I do, I tell people inside of my course, I tell people that I work with, like, I do have a bias towards less care because I see people who are suffering. So we always have to check our bias, you know, um, and, and make sure that we're giving people all the information that they can to make the right decision for them. But that's the course is like, it's a dump of my brain that it's the things that we want you to know before you're forced to make these choices. And, you know, it's things that your your primary care doctor may be able to talk to you about. If your person was receiving like palliative care, they may be able to talk to you about this. But the amount of time that it takes to really learn in order to make an informed choice and to know what questions to ask, because that's yeah. something I that's something else I teach is like, what should you ask if this is happening, you know, so that you can make the best decision in the moment with whatever specific situation is happening. I just feel like it's time consuming. And when you have 15 minute visits with a doctor specialist and in the hospital, you know, I sometimes do have a little bit longer to talk to people. I work just, I work night shifts. So sometimes when it's not as busy, I can actually talk to families for a while and counsel them, which I enjoy doing. Yeah, Um, that's great. But in the hospital, it's just, it's so busy and it's tough because these are when we ask people to make choices, but they're under stress. And so I, I want people to have the access to all the information they, if they purchase my course, they never lose access to the information. So when something happens, they can log back in. And I also have like all these handout resources. So you can print all this stuff out and put it in a binder. And then you could like grab that and go. But you can access it on your phone, you know, or computer if you wanted to like watch my videos in the moment. But it's it's access to information so you can make informed choices um, and then knowing what to ask. Um, so, yeah, knowing, even knowing what to ask, I think is it's like the foundation to informed decision-making because if you can't ask the right questions, it's possible that you learn something later that would change your choice. Yeah. And so I think it's almost like, it sounds like what you've created is sort of a roadmap to help people understand the landscape that they're about to be going through and to know like, okay, this is when I should be asking this question. This is something that I should be thinking about. Yeah. And I think that is such a, an interesting and wonderful thing for people, especially because it's one of the most stressful times that in their lives, especially for the caretakers. Yeah. It's so stressful. I mean, and that's, that's something else that I strongly believe in. Like I, I believe that people should have a foundational legal plan, a financial plan for how they're going to pay for care. But I also think that they need a medical plan. And I think that you know, I was, I was a caregiver to my father. He had a terminal brain cancer and, you know, I, I was in medical school, so I, I had medical knowledge, you know, I didn't have as much clinical experience, you know, taking care of patients, but I can tell you that you carry around this, this stress of not knowing what's going to happen and what, what you're going to have to do when it does. And so I don't want people to have that. Like, you know, that part of being a caregiver, especially for someone living with dementia, because it's so with dementia, there's all there's all these behaviors you have to learn how to deal with because you can't change that person. You have to change right. how you react to the person because anything that you do may make things worse. And there's so much education. No one's born knowing how to do that. Yeah, um, It's like, 
you know, it's like no one's born how to be a parent. And, and mm-hmm. then it's like, how do you take care of someone who's aging, who is an independent adult person that now is losing their independence? Like, how do you yeah. navigate that? It's very stressful and challenging. So I'm like, just do, <laughs> just work with me and make your individualized decision plan or do it on your own. Cause I teach people how to do it and they don't have to pay me. Um, and then, you know, then you can have that piece of stress removed, you know, yeah. or significantly decreased because you just know you, you've heard of these things before. You're not like deer in headlights when someone is coming to you and telling you something's happening and you have to make a choice. So one of the things that I saw firsthand with with my family was that maybe there wasn't enough conversation around sort of an individual plan versus an advanced directive. And then when it came time to make decisions, there was a lot of friction between people because yeah. it's, it's a hard, all these stories are so hard to share without sharing too specifically, but yeah. the, people didn't see eye to eye. I don't think on the next, uh, the next right step. And I think that was really difficult for everyone in the family then, because there was like this tension of like, certain people thinking this should be done and certain people thinking this should be done. Is that something that that you see commonly as well? Yeah. Yes. All the time. So what I, what I typically find is that when families haven't gotten on the same page ahead of time, there may be somebody who even has the authority because they're the medical decision maker on paper, but they don't feel comfortable because of the situation with their family. And so I actually wrote a couple blog articles. My most recent blog articles are about navigating medical decision making as a family. If you have a medical decision maker that was named legally in a document by your person, or if you don't, because there's a process that needs to happen before you're thrown into a situation. And planning is extremely important when more than one person is going to be involved. I mean, we've all, we all know the saying, like there's too many cooks in the kitchen. It's, yeah, it's exactly, you, you cannot. So what happens is in the emergency department, if you cannot make a decision and come to a consensus, your person gets the most conservative care, which is going to be life prolonging care if they get worse. And that may not be what that person wants. And yeah. we don't have the time to, we, I, I do, I do tell people very directly, it's not about you. It's about your person. You are responsible for speaking on their behalf. So if you know that what you're doing is not what they would want, you're, you're making the wrong choice. Like, you know, this in your, in your heart, in your mind, that that's not what they would want. You have to, you almost have to give people permission because they feel so guilty about, about making these decisions. But that's, that's the power of planning. The power of planning is knowing that the things that are happening to the person are not because of you. Yeah. They're because of the underlying problems this person has and the fact that they're aging, the fact that they have medical issues, you know, you didn't do anything. It just, this stuff happens. And yeah. so if you learn about it in advance, it's like, Oh yeah, I knew this was a possibility. I knew this was a possibility. And in my, actually in my course I've had, I didn't realize this either. You know, you kind of learn things as you go. I've had families that have said, I want to do this with my sister. I want to do this with my, I have one person who said, I want to do this with my therapist because she doesn't have any family that's getting involved. So she, she actually, she and her therapist both signed up. So I give a discount for um, families to add on additional user. Um, essentially, of course. Yeah. Cause I want families to do this together. Then you're on the same page, you're speaking the same language and you can plan in advance for what you're going to do. So I'm glad that you brought that up because it's so hard and, and it can really tear families apart. Yeah. I, I think, you know, just seeing the stress and the friction that it, it caused, it really made me sort of think about like, you know, my parents are still very healthy at this point, but, you know, just thinking into the future of like, man, how can we do this better? Mm -hmm. Because the way, the way that it was done, it just, it felt so painful, I think, to everyone involved. And I don't know what it has. I think loss is always painful and there's always going to be grief, but the process itself shouldn't be filled with so much friction and pain because of the decisions that I guess, weren't clear enough. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I mean, it's never easy, you know, 
I mean, it's never easy to lose someone and it's never easy to watch someone be sick and, and suffer because our yeah. instinct is make them better, fix them. Yeah. You know? That's what you want. But in the height of the emotion and the stress, a lot of times trying to fix someone and make them better can actually, it can actually make them worse or make them live with a worse quality of life. And, yeah. but it's hard to see that, you know, when you're, when you're watching someone be very sick and suffer potentially. So yeah. it, you have to think about this stuff in advance, but that's what I think. I think there's a way now for people. I think that access to online education is making it such that we can help people learn what they need to know about their illnesses and how they kind of are, they, they might get worse and might affect their quality of life and what their options are for care and learning about those treatment options and, and whether or not those line up with the way they're living now, if they would be okay with having those things done. But the big thing is like you, we all need to talk about what living means to us. We sh- yeah. These conversations are what people fall back on. Like I've had patients make medical decisions because they've said, well, they said that when they couldn't enjoy books anymore, that that was then they, they were good. That was it. You know, and we and we chose not to put them in the hospital because of that conversation. So yeah. conversations are more important than anything, um, yeah. than any document, um, because y- y- we need to know what living means to the people that we care about. We need to talk about what gives you quality of life. What does that mean to, mean to you? And actually write it down, document yeah. it somewhere. And then as people as people age, that does change, you know. Like for me, mm-hmm. I love to travel, but like, as I get older, that may not be something that's important to me as much, you know, but there are core things. Like I want to be able to have a good meal. I want to be able to, you know, take care of myself physically. If I can't take care of myself physically, I want to be able to say thank you or mm. that hurts. That's too hot. That's too cold. Like I want to be able to communicate my, how I feel. Yeah. So, so just, I think more open conversation about those things can be really, really helpful. Do you have any advice for people in sort of how to get into these conversations? Like how, how do I bring that up? Yeah. Um, I think it kind of depends on who you're talking to, you know? So if someone's asked you to be their medical decision maker, you know, or you think you're going to be, you think you're going to be, then you should say, Hey, you know, like, Do you want me to make, are you going to want me to make your medical decisions? If you are, am I named in a document? Like I need to know if I'm named in a document, I probably should have a copy of it. And then, Hey, if I'm going to be tasked with making your decisions, like I need to know what living means to you. I want to know what's a good day for you. Um, There's a very good tool called the conversation project. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a website. Um, conversationproject.org. If you Google, if you Google converse, the conversation project, it'll come up, but they have these, um, they have these, uh, documents that you can kind of walk through as like a framework for conversations and they have them. Um, they actually do have a dementia specific one as well. Um, I think that th- that's a really, it's a good place to start just reading kind of the prompts for the questions, but, Um, I think telling people like, Hey, look, I want to make decisions that would fall in line with what you would want. And so Mm. I kind of want to talk to you just about like, you know, what, what living means to you. I mean, I had this conversation with my grandmother. I sat her down and was like, Hey, I actually texted her. (laughs) I said, (laughs) I texted her before I went and talked to her and said, Hey, Hey, can you, can you tell me what quality of life means to you? And she just wrote me this paragraph, you know? Mm. Um, so that's a good, that's a good start. But, um, you know, and you can read, you can read my blog. It might help you, um, kind of think through some things like I, and that it is, it is written for dementia families, but there's a lot of general information in there, like about the do not resuscitate, about the living will, about my issues with those things. Um, Mm -hmm. and then about how to have a goals of care conversation, how to determine someone's wishes if they never spoke with you. Um, so yeah, that's all really, really important stuff to be able to cover. So I'm going to make sure to link to that. I'll link to the conversation project. Yeah. For someone who has a family member who is dealing with uh, dementia, how often should they update? Because as you mentioned, it does change. Uh, you know, maybe yeah. 
things change as you start to age more, as different symptoms become more uh, difficult to deal with. So how often should someone think about updating this, uh, this individual plan or any documents that they have? Yeah. So I tell people that, um, if you're, we, in the course, I teach a concept called tipping points. And so I ask people to identify ahead of time, what would kind of tip their person into a different goal of care. And typically, mm. you know, it's goals of care. There's like three main categories that are taught uh, that I teach, but then kind of go online with some of the medical order forms, like the post form I was talking about. So it's care that care that is full treatment. So that's basically you're getting everything done. Um, that would prolong your life, then care that is some care, but not all care, which has a spectrum of how much care we're going to do there. And then care that's focused on comfort and, and, and comfort focused care does not mean no care. It means that the intention of the care first intention is to provide comfort first. And then if it prolongs life, okay, so be it like whatever. But I teach people to, to identify what quality of life means to the person and to docu- like to think about in advance, what would tip your person from wanting to do full treatment to some, but not all to comfort and think about that ahead of time and document it. And I give examples of what might, you know, depending on the person, but anytime a person has a change in, in the way that they're functioning. So if they're not if their body is not functioning as well, like they're having difficulty walking, they're having difficulty talking, swallowing. Um, if they have a new medical problem, if they had a fall or an injury, if they came to the ER or they were hospitalized, like anytime you're accessing care for un- an unplanned reason or someone seems to be getting worse, it's time to just check in. And I teach a process for that inside of my course, you know, like this is what you need to do when you check in and and make sure that nothing needs to be changed because you're right. If you don't check in, you won't realize the goals of care changed. And there are different resources available to support families depending on goals of care. I mean, palliative care is is an excellent resource for anyone living with an, with a chronic illness that we know we cannot fix. And dementia is is that we know the diseases causing dementia can't be fixed. So everybody living with dementia would qualify for palliative care if they can get access to those services. Mm. Um, and, and under palliative care, you can have every type of medical care done. Uh, interesting. It's different than hospice. Hospice is, uh, hospice is comfort care. You know, it's care that doesn't intend to prolong someone's life. Palliative care is looking at the person as a whole, is looking at all the medications they're taking. Are these medications reasonable? You know, and then what are we going to do? I mean, it's kind of like what I do, palliative care. Mm-hmm. But my course is, I mean, it's a total of like eight or nine hours of content. I mean, they're not going to be able to spend eight or nine hours with you, but right. But um, but I am a champion for palliative care. So okay, can yeah. you can you actually explain? So I actually this is probably because I'm I'm just naive and, and maybe a little uninformed on the subject. But can you explain palliative care? What that actually is versus something like hospice? Yeah, yeah. So um. So palliative care is care that focuses on improving and protecting someone's quality of life okay. and really identifying like what their goals are, you know, and looking at them as a, as a, a big picture, you know, overview of their whole health. So it's basically like an additional kind of primary care service, but, and you can have palliative care and your primary care team. And so they're okay. on a palliative care team. You would have some sort of medical professional, like a nurse practitioner or a physician. And then you would have social workers, nurses. Um, one of the benefits of using palliative care is that they're local in your community and they know the resources for whatever condition you're faced with. Um, yeah. And the families also, they help provide support to families because, you know, the families are oftentimes involved in caring for a person, no matter, depending on what the illness is. Yeah. So, but I do find that it, that palliative care is more often used in the, in the hospital and they're used as consultants when the medical care team is thinking, uh oh, uh, is this, should we continue standard of care? Should we continue to do everything? Which, mm. And so they'll call in palliative care to consult and to have a goals of care discussion with the family, which in my opinion, you're, it's behind the eight ball. You know, we should be teaching yeah. people in advance what might happen so that they, they're not caught off guard. But, um, 
And I think it's hard to have goals of care discussions in the hospital. I think it's a stressful place, but, but hospice is different. So hospice care is care that's meant for the end of life. And someone has to qualify for hospice. And typically what we'll say is that it wouldn't be surprising to a physician that this patient, this person passes away within the next six months. Um, And so that care, the goal of care with, with hospice is to only have care that would first provide comfort. So we're not going to go to the hospital. We're not going to, you know, have intensive care or have critical care. Whereas with palliative care, you can do that. Yeah. You can have all that care. Um, And people who are living on hospice can still have surgery. They can still come to the hospital if we can't meet their comfort needs wherever they're living. Like if they're in severe pain, they fractured their hip, they got cut and they're bleeding everywhere. You know, you take care of those of those folks. But the idea is to keep them out of the hospital and keep them comfortable. And hospice actually will provide medical equipment in your in your home um, can keep someone in their home providing medical equipment. and people can actually come and care for the person wherever they're living instead of having to go to doctor's offices. So, um, yeah, but I find that palliative care is harder to find outside of the hospital. It depends on where you live, what the kind of programs they have. So that makes sense. Thank you for, for sharing the difference. And I think, you know, my family comes from a pretty rural area, which Mm -hmm probably is why I wasn't as familiar with the term palliative care. It sounds like it may not be as common to see like in a very, you know, a town of 2000 people, let's say. Yeah. And you may find companies that do both. Okay. Um, And technically hospice is a type of palliative care. Um, Okay. So it's just a subset of sort of that. Yeah. And it's just based on really, it's based on what someone's goals are. So if their goal is to still try to prolong life, they, they should not be on hospice. Yep. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's change gears a little bit. And I want to talk about just uh, sort of the uh, emergency room in general. So for people, um, you know, my age, how can we be sort of prepared and help make sure that if we're coming to the emergency room and we do have an emergency that, you know, we're, we're good to go. And we're like, uh, I guess, doing our best to, to be ready. Yeah. So there's a few things I think that we should all do in preparation for the fact that we might need to go to the ER. And just one of the main things is just know your medical history. Mm. Um, know what medical problems you have and be able to talk about them a little bit, you know, you don't, you don't have to know everything. We're not asking you to be doctors, but you know, if you have high blood pressure, diabetes, you have high, high cholesterol, you know, if you're taking medications for those conditions, you have them. So that's something that I find oh, people often, yeah. oftentimes don't realize if you're taking medications for something, it means that you have a medical problem. Um, and so knowing what medical problems you have and knowing what medications you take. Um, and if you need to write it down and print it out and fold it up and put it in your wallet, do so. Um, if you need to also have it on your phone, do so. But, but I think that we have a problem in our society, um, of not, of not taking ownership of our, of our medical problems. And I understand the healthcare system is broken and irritating and hard to navigate, but your body is the only vessel that you get. Yeah. live in <laughs> and yeah. your health is like your number one asset. I mean, if you don't have health, you have nothing. I, if yeah. I, I'm biased, but I mean, yeah. that's how I feel. And so if you, if you don't know the problems that you have, you cannot know what, what could go wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's, this is what I teach people. It's like know and own your person's medical history because it helps you look into the future, you know? Yeah. Um, So that's a big thing. And then, I mean, I think also for people who are younger, it's kind of like it's learning about urgent care versus, you know, primary care versus coming to the emergency department. Yeah. I think this is a great thing to cover actually. Yeah. Can you you talk about the differences in those intended uses of those things? Yeah. So I think people are having a hard time getting in to see their primary care doctor when they have a medical problem. That's all of a sudden, you know? And so I think that a lot of times it gets delayed. They don't access care and then they get worse, you know, potentially come to the ER, but urgent care, 
care. Urgent care is great. Like if you have something that's pretty simple, you think, oh, I might have strep throat. I have a small cut. I think I sprained my ankle. I may have broken my ankle, but you know, if something's not hanging off of you, your body parts, not hanging off, you're not bleeding everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, Chest pain is usually not a great thing to go to urgent care for because they don't always have the same tests that we can do. And like, if you're having severe abdominal pain and you can't stop vomiting, you may want to come to the emergency department, but for things that are relatively simple and you think there's no way I'm being admitted to the hospital, then, then urgent care may be appropriate. It's, it's hard to tell people, but I think thinking about urgent care first, you know, if you, if you can drive yourself to the hospital, you might be able to go to urgent care. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, I think knowing where they are also, you know, it, that may also be helpful understanding that where is the closest place that you could go to? What are the hours? You know, maybe you would yeah. want to know that ahead of need, ahead of need, you know? Um, and then for people who have kids, um, dedicated pediatric emergency departments are staffed by people who are trained in just kids and the yeah. staff, not just the doctors, but the nurses, the techs, so if you have if you have kids and you're concerned about your kid, it might be worth seeking out a pediatric emergency department. The other the other thing I'll tell people about is freestanding emergency departments. Mm-hmm. So urgent cares are urgent cares. They're not ERs. They don't have CT scanners. They don't usually have ultrasound capability. There's right. things that they cannot do. They can't do the same blood tests. ERs are equipped to save your life if you're dying and a freestanding emergency department can do that. If you go to a freestanding ER and you need to be admitted, you're going to have to be transferred to a hospital because they're Uh, not physically attached to a hospital. And so you have to kind of know in your area, where's the closest hospital versus freestanding. And some of the things about freestanding, we don't have a ton of blood in them. So if you have a problem where you might have bleeding issues, it might not be the best place to go. And then the other thing is I tell people that if you take medic, if you're if, say someone that has like Parkinson's disease or they're on medications that it's really important that they take them at a certain time, freestanding emergency departments don't have full pharmacy. So they may not have that your medication like a hospital would. Uh, interesting. So, yeah. And then the other thing I'll say too about preparing for the ER is a to-go bag. Um, And especially as people are aging or you have someone who's living with dementia that you're caring for. So that bag has, you know, insurance card. It has their, your medical power of attorney form. If they've done advanced directives, um, it has your medical decision plan that you've done with me. You know, it has, um, it has some snacks for you as the person that's going to be there. Maybe some water, a pen and a piece of paper. So you can write down questions. Um, I actually think if you go to my website at blammd.com forward slash to go, I think I have a checklist that that just pops up if you go to that link and um, I'll check it right now and you can go there and, and see my checklist. Um, that's yeah, awesome. That's right. Blammd.com forward slash to go. Um, okay, perfect. I'm going to link to that one as well. Cause that sounds like something that would also be very useful to have on hand. And it's something that's a, that's a freebie that could be a good intro to uh, Dr. Lamb's work and everything that she's offering. So if you're looking for something to kind of kickstart, I think that, and then she's got the individual plan audio, both of those things sound like they could be really, really useful just as a kickstart to these types of conversations and this sort of thought process. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And then of course, by the course, because the course sounds like you said nine hours of content. Is yeah. that right? Yeah, I think. And I I mean, honestly, I'll probably be adding a little bit to it and tweaking it, but people get lifetime access to it. So yeah. um, I wanted it to be a place that it's like a one-stop shop for medical decision-making for someone living with dementia. Um, so, so yeah. It's, it's $397 and it's a, just a one-time fee and then it's delivered over eight weeks so that I didn't want to overwhelm people. So it comes to you weekly, but then at the end you can go back and listen to it all whenever you want to. Uh, That's awesome. Uh, Brittany, what inspired you to become a doctor in the first place? (laughs) 
you know, I don't really, honestly don't really know the answer. I mean, yeah. I told my parents when I, they said that I was like four years old and said I wanted to be a doctor. <laughs> and wow. then, yeah. And then I, I, there are no doctors in my family. Um, well now my uncles have married, one of them married a doctor, but, um, okay. but no immediate family. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I love to learn and I mean, I, I do like to help people. I do care, you know? Um, yeah. And so I wanted a job that I wanted a job that I, you know, did something that mattered. Um, and I think a lot of us have jobs that do something that matter, but, um, but I think that's part of it. So, but I didn't know what I wanted to do when I went to medical school. Um, yeah. I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to do, but I kind of fell into the ER by process of elimination. Um, Cause I like, I like problem solving. I like mm. going, like, I like to go, go, go. And then I also like the fact that, you know, I don't have people calling me when I'm at home, like I'm off work yeah. Um, and I can kind of decompress and separate myself because I tend to get a little bit. Um, I think if I had my own patients, like my own cohort of patients that I was responsible for, I probably wouldn't travel as much and I would probably give a bit too much of myself. Um, yeah. and, and I know that about myself. I tend to be, I tend to, yeah, I think I would, I think I would struggle actually. So it's, it's nice to yeah. kind of disconnect from work. So. Yeah. It sounds like you landed in the right spot and then it sounds like you've been able to sort of niche down and find other ways. Um, just a side note, the fact that you've done this on top of still being a physician in an ER, it just, it blows my mind. It's, it's really cool to see the passion that you have for the work that you're doing. And so I really appreciate you taking the time to share all of this information and yeah. your story today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you. Yeah, here and chat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll definitely have to do this again sometime. This is, yeah. this is a topic that I think needs a lot more airtime. I'm happy to come back and deep dive on anything. So you just let me know. Okay. Awesome. Well, I have one last question for you, Brittany, before we go. And that's um, geared towards our younger listeners who are maybe still trying to find their direction in life. And they know they want to do something big, but they're not sure. What uh, what advice would you give someone who's kind of just starting out on their journey? Gosh, I mean, I feel like... I feel like you should be open-minded to possibilities, you know, and learn from the people, learn from the people in your world, like ask them what mistakes do they make? What things would they do differently if they could go back? You know, but I think mm. that this time in history, you know, we're, we're able to pivot and you can learn pretty much anything you want to. Yeah. If you, if you, you know, if you go on YouTube, you're yeah. really, so, yeah. I mean, the possibilities are endless, but you, but you, you want to stay true to yourself, you know, and mm. you want to feel good about what you're doing. You need to take care of yourself financially. Don't get yourself into a financial pickle, but yeah. um, be smart about what you choose to do. But there are just so many possibilities. So follow, follow your passion, but take advantage of people who have gone ahead of you and do not, do not make the same mistakes that they did. You know, but yeah. that's what I would say. <laughs> that's very well said. Where can people find you? You mentioned your website. Uh, if yeah. you want to give that another shout, please do. And then where else can people find you if they want to follow more of your, of your content? Yeah. So my website is B as in Brittany, uh, lamb, like a sheep, MD, medical doctor. So blammd.com. And then, um, so the links to pretty much everything that I do and my social media, it's all there, but I'm oh, on perfect. LinkedIn. Um, I think it's just my name, Brittany lamb, Brittany lamb, MD. And then I'm pretty, pretty um, prevalent on Instagram. So I post quite a bit on Instagram. It's at blam.md. Um, and then I also, if people are interested, if you are a family caregiver or you're someone who advocates for caregivers, um, family dementia, family caregivers, I do run a free Facebook group um, and it, it has a long title. But if you search medical decision-making um, dementia, it should come up, but it, it's called medical decision-making for your loved one with dementia. Um, and it's a, a private group. You do have to request to join, make sure that you agree to the group rules or it will decline you. Um, but all people are welcome there. And I, I do some trainings there. I, I bring in guests and I do some live videos and answer questions in there, um, separate to what I do on social media and separate to the blog. So I think it's pretty, pretty high value and you're more than welcome to join. <laughs> That's awesome. 
I'm going to link to every one of these things. If you're listening and you're interested, please check out everything that Brittany is doing from her website to the Facebook group. Follow her on Instagram. She's doing some really cool stuff. So I will have the links to those right in the show notes for everyone. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention today that we didn't get to cover yet? I don't, I think, I don't think so. I think we had a lot of things and I, uh, I think we did too. just also like I, I worked last night, so I think I, I rambled a little bit, but hopefully it was, no, hopefully it was I helpful. <laughs> I don't think so at all. I think you, you did just a phenomenal job answering everything. And I'm so thankful that you were willing to do the show today. Yeah. No worries. All right. Well, we'll talk again soon, Brittany. Sounds good. All right. Bye. And there you have it, my conversation with Dr. Brittany Lamb. I hope that you enjoyed today's conversation. Thank you, Brittany, for being on the show. And thank you, the listener, for choosing to be here today. I know there's tons of podcasts out there and tons of places to consume content. And the fact that you chose to be here with us on the Impact Code today is very special. So thank you for listening. If you did enjoy today's show, please don't forget to leave us a review. It really helps others be able to find the show more quickly and easily. So if you did enjoy the show, please take a few moments and leave us a five-star review. That would be wonderful. And one last thing, I want to thank Tower Community Bank for providing everything we need to make this podcast happen. If you did enjoy today's episode, one additional thing that you can do to support the show is go to towercommunitybank.com and check us out for all your banking needs. We would love to see you there. And that is all for today, folks. Until next time, be well, and we'll see you back here next time for another episode of The Impact Code. Bye.